The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. plan is that we have several weeks yet to consider this letter of Philippians in the New Testament, Paul's letter to the church at Philippi. We're in chapter 3. I'm going to consider verses 10 through 16 with you, but I think I'll just back up and take a bit of a running start at it by beginning with verse 7 as I read. Philippians 3, retracing some of the ground we talked about last time, starting with verse 7. Listen to God's holy word. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish, that I may gain Christ." And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward that which is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. Only let us live up to what we have already attained. This is God's holy word. When involved in the process of interviewing candidates for ministry, men who are in seminary applying to be ordained by our presbytery, I and others will see their applications and things that they submit in writing. And I've noticed in recent years it's not unusual to have a candidate say something like this, I have a passion for evangelism. I want to reach people for Christ. Or, I have a passion to preach Christ. We seem to have a passionate generation coming along, and I've been glad to see that as they express a motive of deep fervency quite often in relation to the ministry that they hope to undertake. It's certainly a commendable thing when younger people and younger believers say they're passionate, they're enthusiastic, They're zealous for their calling. 
But sometimes I am caused to wonder when I see this, why is that something expressed primarily by younger believers or younger people in Christ? Is that same fervor for the gospel and keenness about faith in Christ typically exhibited by people in their 40s and 50s and 60s who've walked decades with the Lord? I'm sad to say you see the tendency to cool off, at least in terms of outward expression, too many times not necessarily questioning the sincerity of the heart, but the outward expression tends to become more dull and even apathetic as we go on in Christian life. Well, such was never true of Paul. We don't know his exact age when he wrote this letter, but it's probably just about 30 years since his great conversion event on the Damascus Road. And you would think Paul has to be in the, at minimum in his mid-50s, maybe a bit older, when he writes this letter. He's near the end of his life. And here he is, certainly not at all dulled in his zeal, but rather still living for Christ in a full tilt, open throttle way. I said to someone, if, if you gave me two pictures of a, let's say, 65 or 70-year-old man, and one of them is kind of using his walker and cautiously walking about the retirement community, and the other one is perhaps looking way beyond his youthful years, but he's on his Harley Davidson roaring down a country road. The second is Paul. And you might say Paul didn't have a Harley, but I can picture him on one because that's where he lived, how he lived. He lived boldly. He confronted people who opposed faith in Christ. He never used half measures. He never had a timid trust or lukewarm devotion. He despised those things. And last time we heard him telling us that as a redeemed man with a good deal of accomplishments, perhaps to his credit and his resume, he wasn't resting on those things. He was resting 100% on the righteousness of Jesus Christ to be his in eternity. This is a very emotional and, and you could say passionate chapter of Scripture. Already we've seen it in the things that Paul has argued when he spoke about his opponents who, who are arguing for goodness by the law. You saw back in verse uh, 2 of this chapter, he called them dogs. And he talk, talked about his own good resume and works that he'd done, and he called that rubbish. And I told you last time that there's really a much stronger word, something that would come from the sewer that applies to that. He wasn't at all mild in anything that he was saying here. Somehow it made me think of a dog who briefly lived in our care many, many years ago. My wife and I were brief caretakers of a dog that was part, we think it was part German shepherd and part husky. This was not a cute little puppy. I think he weighed, he was full grown, and he weighed probably, I think, 80 pounds. And you should have seen Carol taking him for a walk. He took her for a walk as he charged down the street. And I was thinking of that image of a, a strong animal straining at his leash and lunging forward when I think of Paul here and the way he lives his Christian life. And nothing held back, everything in 
forward momentum as he moves out in resurrection hope and pursues Christ. Now, Paul is telling us here that it's the righteousness of Jesus and his resurrection power that one day in the final court of heaven is going to be that which he will claim and and that will clothe him in actual perfection. And he says, that's sure. He's certain about that. He will have that as his possession. But even though he knows it's a sure possession now, he doesn't have it yet. And he lives in the anticipation, believing it's certain, and yet still a sinful man, still living in a bent world and looking forward to this great possession, straining toward the day when it will be his. He gives us a picture for ourselves here. To have a hunger and a thirst for an ever-deepening knowledge of our God and Savior. Not just apathetic nodding acquaintance, secondhand awareness, oh yes, I know the facts of my faith, I long ago confessed that, and so on. With Paul, he says, look, Jesus came upon me on the Damascus road like a gang of bandits and knocked me off my horse. He gripped my life. And ever since then, I've been grasping him, holding on to him, and following him with a kind of holy abandon. And that is what he's calling us to, urging you and I to the same. He's saying, look, if you've had that initial knowledge of Christ that tells you, you too will stand at his throne, you too will be perfected in him one day, you shouldn't be able to rest until you are drinking more and more deeply of him, even in this life now. So first of all, as we look at verses 10 and 11 here in our text, we go on this desire or motivation that Paul has. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. I see that as a statement of hunger to know the risen Christ. You know, Paul, Paul's just saying, I could, if I wanted to, look at how much I've given up. And he listed that in his resume a few verses earlier. All the goodness, all the acclaim that that was on him by his birth and breeding and accomplishments. But he says, that's all nothing compared to the infinite knowledge and greatness of what I've gained in belonging to Jesus Christ. A lot of times we picture becoming a Christian, and particularly the act that we call justification in the Bible, in rather dry and unemotional terms. Now, there's a right way to understand justification, either as a legal act or an accounting act, that maybe isn't very emotional. We say that justification is like a judge declaring, you are now innocent, and whatever guilt might have been supposed about you has been replaced by Christ's righteousness. It's also an accounting transaction. The Bible properly describes it that way. The, the, the debit that was on your side of the ledger from your sin has been lifted off, and the credit of Jesus has been put down. Well, if you think about a legal transaction or an accounting transaction, who gets excited, you know, about that? That's just all kind of dry and, and on paper. But Paul here is thinking about another way in which his new life in Christ was real to him, and that was the new birth. He saw himself as literally a reborn individual. 
that the God of creation, by the same power in which he brought Jesus out of the grave, had recreated him, made him a new man. Perhaps thinking of what he wrote in Ephesians 2 when he said that our souls began in this world as being dead towards God. We are walking around. We are intelligent people. We, we get educated. And we do worthy things. But spiritually, we start out dead. And yet he says, we who believe in Christ and who've had this new birth of faith, the wording is God made us alive with Christ. A new creation has happened. And Paul is ever excited about that. He says, look, this isn't just some dry thing on paper. This is a complete change of my life. God took hold of me, and now he indwells me by his Holy Spirit. And I'm wrapped up in the reality of who God is, and it's through Jesus the Son that I know these things. And when he talks about rejoicing in Christ as he does so much in this letter, remember, that's the theme we've seen splashed across this whole letter. He keeps saying, rejoice, rejoice. Why is he rejoicing? Well, perhaps first and foremost, because he knows he is uniquely alive in a world of people that are simply walking zombies as far as spiritual things are concerned. And so he says, this very power of the resurrection has changed me. I want more of it. I want to experience it. I want to drink deeper of it. But then he has a a real reality about it too here in verse 10, because he knows that if he's going to become more like Christ in terms of experiencing the resurrection of Jesus, he's going to have to experience all of what Jesus did, and that includes his sufferings. And he says we're going to become like him in his death. Now that, of course, doesn't mean the harsh literalism of being crucified, It need not even necessarily mean for many of us that we will be physically tortured or persecuted the way Jesus was, but at the very minimum, I think it has to mean that we, being called those who are indwelt by Christ and known as Christ men, Christians, are going to experience some of the reproach And the shame that was involved, that was heaped on him, that the world brought against him, it's going to come against us. And if we would have his Easter power remaking us, we need to know that along with that is going to go some of that Good Friday shame and sense of being rejected by the world. Romans 8, 17 says that we will suffer along with him in order that we may be glorified with him. Or 2 Corinthians 4.10 says, we carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be exhibited in us. But certainly that power of the resurrection is going to win out over whatever scorn or whatever kind of reproach the world would put on us. And so he goes on in verse 11 to talk about attaining to the resurrection from the dead, the final event when I have that resurrection body. Sometimes people are puzzled. I, I used to be, when I would read this verse, at the fact that, I don't, depending on your English translation, in the NIV that I read, it says, and so somehow to attain the resurrection. Does that sound like Paul saying, well, maybe I'll attain it and maybe I won't? You could read it that way, but you'd be reading it wrong. What we really think is meant here is Paul saying, I know I'm going to attain it, but I don't understand what exactly circumstances are going to come about. How will my death happen? 
what's going to be for me, you know, in the steps immediately ahead until I attain that. Somehow, God's going to bring me there. I don't know the steps, but I do know the goal. And God will bring it to pass. So he's saying we have the foretaste of it, we have the assurance of it in Christ, and so we long more and more and more to know it, to taste it, to walk in it. I wonder if this illustration would help you any. We had a wedding here just the other day, and you know, I was thinking about any engaged couple approaching marriage. They might say, well, we're about to be married. That's very important, a very big step in life. We better learn everything we could learn about it. So there are a lot of good books, good Christian books to say, okay, as a couple, we're going to read books in the months ahead of our marriage. We'll read three or four or five books, and we'll go to Pastor Light, and we'll have premarital counseling, six sessions. Well, by the time we do that, we've read five books. We've had all of our sessions of counseling. We really know about marriage. I hope not too many couples would be ready to say that. Maybe, though, they'd say, all right, uh, three or four weeks after the wedding. Well, now we really know all about marriage. And those of you who have been married, I hope, in a healthy marriage for many, many years, I know my wife and I would tell them this. You know what? It's 41 going on 42. And what I have to say is I'm just beginning to figure out what marriage is all about, and the wonders of it, the glories of it, the joys of it. It's such a great thing. I wouldn't even begin to presume that my initial knowledge was anything compared to what decades of walking in the relationship have brought about. That's what we're saying here about the Christian life. Do you know Christ in real power with with real hope and joy and thankfulness when you first come to him? Of course. But that's just the first taste of a banquet meal spread out to know him more and more throughout your life and then to know him perfectly when he returns and brings you the crown of that resurrection body. So the hunger to know the risen Christ is the first thing here. But secondly, verses 12 to 14 take us to see this. One great thing that is a Christian single-minded pursuit. Verse 12, listen. Not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. The same paradox is at work here that he's been talking about in earlier places in this book. I take you back once more and remind you of chapter 2, 12 and 13, those very important verses. Remember, we looked closely at that, and Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for God is working in you both to will it and perform it. Here's really very much the same thing. He's saying, look, Christ has gripped you, has taken hold of you as he has with me. He knocked, in Paul's case, he could say he knocked me off my horse. He, he blinded me for a temporary season to all other sights except himself. And now, since he has taken hold of me, I am pursuing him. I am running after Christ to know him, to become absorbed in him, to worship him and obey him. So there's that that irony of both God's endeavor, God's grace, and our response, a vigorous response. 
The resurrection power of the Spirit is doing this, Paul's saying. It's not just a question of are you an enthusiastic person. Many people would say, oh, well, you know, in hey, Lancaster County, I'm German, right? Germans don't run up and kiss people on both cheeks. That belongs to people of Mediterranean origin. German people are very reserved and proper, but solid citizens. I'm not saying anything bad about German people. I have a little of that blood myself. But they would say, well, I'm not your, your enthusiastic type. Don't count on me to get all excited and, and be all, you know, jumping around like Paul seems to be here. It's not a question of personality type at all. It's the resurrection power of God, you see, that brings this driving force into your life, that makes you begin to think of pursuing Christ the way an athlete would pursue their goal in a track race or an athletic event. You know, can you imagine? I better tread carefully on the Phillies here because I understand yesterday wasn't such a great day. But, but here's the great pitcher, and he is a great pitcher, Roy Halladay. I'm sure that this fellow doesn't completely forget about baseball and pitching all the time during the week that he's not pitching. He's just, oh, I'll just go and do whatever I want. And I don't have to concentrate on pitching. I don't have to take care of myself. I don't have to train. I'm a great pitcher. Of course he doesn't. He's an athlete. He's got particular skills he has to focus on and practice and, and be disciplined about developing himself and continuing to hone his skills and get advice from others. The Christian life is like that. It requires a discipline. It requires an application of effort in a single-minded way. The way in which David prayed in Psalm 86 when he said, Lord, give to me an undivided heart. A heart that sees one thing and goes after it. Paul wrote a similar thing in 2 Thessalonians two thirteen and following. He said, from the very beginning, God chose you to be saved by the sanctifying work of the Spirit and by believing the truth. So now, stand firm and hold on to these teachings. You see, God in his grace has worked. You need to work. You need to respond in an active way taking a grip on that by which God has gripped you. One of the practical ways that this is implemented, I think, is in verse 13 here, as Paul says, forgetting what is behind. I thought a long while, what does he have in mind? He isn't really explicit about what's behind that we're supposed to forget. I think that could have two aspects, rightly, and the commentators seem to agree that, number one, he would say, forget about anything positive or, or great that you think you've accomplished or you've attained in spiritual things. Don't rest in that. Don't say, oh, wow, I had a, I had a wonderful conversion, or, or man, the greatest time in my Christian life was, was in my 20s when I was involved with this or that group, or I had a fantastic small group experience for years that just sustained me. And, and there are many people that look back and they say, oh, there was something great in my past with Christ. Well, good. But now, go forward. Don't try to live there because, believe me, God isn't as impressed with your Christian accomplishments in the past as you are. But I think also there's that sense of failure and sin that's behind us. And a lot of times we're looking over our shoulder at that. And we say, boy, you know, I really blew it back there. 
I made a terrible mess of things. I don't know how the people involved could forgive me. I don't know how God could forgive you. Well, does he promise to? Does he say if you confess your sin, he will be faithful and just to forgive your sin? Is he faithful and just? Or are you going to deny his faithfulness and his justice and say, he's made an exception, he won't forgive me? If God says you have a clean slate, you have a clean slate. Go forward. Don't live with those things entangling you and tripping you up the rest of your life. Be thankful for his mercies and move ahead. Put your past under the blood of the cross, whether it involves good things in the past or negative things. Go forward. Go forward without a backward glance. And then there's further practical advice here as he talks about straining towards what is ahead, pressing on. There's that image again of what I talked about, the the great big dog, you know, pulling you down the road. It's almost like the goal of knowing Christ is like that. You've got one hand on the leash of it, and it's pulling you forward. It's a calling from God, calling you heavenward in Christ. There's a saying of Jesus from the gospel that applies here. It's a, it's a little-known saying and one that I think is often misunderstood. It's something Jesus said in both Matthew and Luke, but I'll take the Matthew eleven twelve version of it, when Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven is forcefully or has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men take hold of it. Now, some people have said, what in the world does that mean? Who are these forceful men that are taking hold of the kingdom? Is this a bad thing? Does this mean opponents of Christ are somehow trying to grasp his kingdom and destroy it or harm it? Well, actually, the greatest part of the commentaries believe the other, believe something positive is there. That Jesus was actually commending this as the determined action of what believers must do. He said, look, the kingdom is like an army marching through history. And forceful men and women are joining that army and getting on board and going forward, taking hold of the cause of Christ. After all, he described it many times in forceful terms, didn't he? Denying yourself, taking up your cross. That's not a passive thing at all. And being his disciple does mean action, motivation, forward movement, swimming against the tide of our current culture, an untiring sort of attention to discipline of prayer and learning Scripture and worship and witness and service, not simply sitting back and passively saying, God has done it all. He doesn't want anything from me. Most of you certainly at some time or other have seen that so excellent Christian film. It's, I guess, about 30 years old, but it's so good still. The film Chariots of Fire. The message about two men and their exploits in England running as stars in the Paris Olympics in the early 1920s. And probably the focus of the movie is, is Eric Little, the Scotsman, son of missionaries, who was training at University of Edinburgh and wanted to go to China, as his parents had done to be a missionary. But here he was, a a really fast runner and and great star of football. And you remember the one scene of that movie, and it's 
based totally on a true event where Eric Little was in a race. It happened to be a quarter-mile race. Now, those of you that know track, you know, the typical high school oval track or college track, that's what that is. One time around is a quarter of a mile. It's not a very long race when you're running fast. And in that race that happened before the Olympics that, that brought him such fame, here was Eric Little taking off with the other runners, and it's implied at least that one of the other runners, a Frenchman, tripped him, and he went down sprawling on the grass. Now, normally in a quarter of a mile, that's it. There's no way you're going to get back up and be in that race. But Eric Little did get up, and he shows in the film, and, and as you read historic reports of it, he, they say he took off like a man possessed with his head thrown back gasping for air, his legs pumping, and to everyone's amazement, he caught the pack of runners and passed them to win. One of the great, that must have been a thrilling things to see. And you say, well, why do you bring up such a, you know, rare historic accomplishment like that? Do you really expect that can inspire me? Well, I would really hope it would, because every one of us goes down on the track, don't we? in our Christian lives. There are times when the grass stains are all over our hands and our clothing, and we look up and see the heels of everybody leaving us behind, and we say, oh man, I have failed in this race of Christ. Now, whether you're going to get back up and and lap the pack, I don't know. But God is calling us to persevere in our race, to bring to that race, an expenditure of energy and concern and hunger to be in his presence, to learn of him, to know his word, to worship him, and to hate that blasé listlessness with which so many Christians bring to their Christian lives. We need to pray, oh God, I need the power of your resurrection. It isn't in me to be able to do this. The energy, the commitment isn't in me. I need that new birth of yours empowering me to live for you with concentrated energy and discipline and zeal. Well, I close for today with a quick look at verses 15 and 16 here as Paul wraps up. And he exhorts them, I think, saying that a mature Christian knows his imperfections only too well while he runs towards perfection. You see, there's a very conscious play on word here, with play on words with the word perfection. In the, the translation I read, it's mature in verse 15, but it's the same word for perfection. And what he's doing is thinking of those folks that he had blasted earlier in this chapter for thinking that they were perfect because they obeyed the law in some great way. And he's saying, look, here's what it means to be perfect. It means knowing how imperfect you are. If you're mature, you understand how far you still have to go. But you're in the race. And you know the God who has guaranteed the race. And ironically, the measure of our perfection or maturity is found in our consciousness of still being imperfect and yet pursuing the God who has pursued us. Last Sunday, we sang that great hymn from, written by Dr. Jim Boyce and Paul Jones about come to the waters where Christ is pictured as a stream that we drink from. 
And there's one phrase that always catches me in that hymn when it calls Christ. It says, drink from the pure, inexhaustible one. Drink of Christ himself. He's an inexhaustible source from which to drink. Once you taste him, you'll want more and more and more. And one day, you'll truly have your fill as you see him face to face. Can you say about Christ today, this is the race I'm in, this one thing I'm doing, forgetting what's behind me, I'm not worried about how badly I've failed or how great I've accomplished things. What I'm doing is straining forward. I'm going towards, pressing towards the prize of my upward calling in Jesus Christ. I want to know Christ more and more and more. Are you praying that? Is that the way you approach worship on a Sunday? Is that how you open up your Bible during the week or pray, even in spare moments during the day? Lord, I want to know you. Fill me with your power. Satisfy me with who you are. You know, people who only see the movie Chariots of Fire probably don't know the sequel to Eric Little's story. After the Paris Olympics, where he achieved some amount of fame, he did go on to become a missionary in China. And you might know that he persisted in that for some 20 years or so until the early 1940s when the world was engaged in war and Japan actually invaded China, whole parts of China. There were some terrible things that went on that to most Americans, little known a part of World War II is what Japan did in China. And I don't have time to rehearse it all, but it was brutal and it was cruel. Well, Eric Little was in a territory that was invaded, and Americans, people not involved, not native Chinese, were allowed to leave. He sent his wife and three daughters to Canada for safekeeping, but he elected to stay. He had grown fond of people he was ministering to. He thought they needed his care, and so pretty soon he ended up in a prisoner of war camp along with many Chinese people, and he cared for the sick and the dying and the poor and shared food and did everything he could to try to help people and minister to them in those terrible conditions. And exposed to malnutrition and overwork, he died of a brain tumor in that prisoner of war camp at the age of 43. Well, you know, I'd like to think that based on our text today, that humble man's biblical epitaph should be this. He never stopped running. May you never stop running towards the prize of your upward calling in Jesus Christ. Our Father, forgive us for our lack of energy, for our apathy. Forgive us for being people on the sidelines watching others in the race. Renew us, we pray. Discipline us. Call us to follow you, to taste more and more of our great Savior, and to move toward the hope of that day when we'll see him in his fullness. We praise you for the privilege of this race. In Jesus' name, amen.